Our word today comes from the beginning of the story of Elijah. Just a few verses before, Elijah comes up to King Ahab and tells him there's going to be a drought. King Ahab is not a fan of that and sends him away. Elijah is able to survive in the wilderness for a while, but even there the water runs out. God sends him. The word of the Lord came to him, Scripture says, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there. For I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So Elijah set out and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel so that I may drink. Now as she was going to bring it, he called to her again and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. But I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home, prepare it for myself and my son so we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something of yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied. The jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as her and her household, ate for many, many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil ever fail, according to the word of the Lord that God spoke by Elijah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy God of Isaac and Abraham and Jacob, You have spoken through the prophets, and you have given us what we need this day, your life-giving word. So may it be so. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be what we need, inspired by you, to give us strength for this day. Amen. The good news of the gospel is that in the face of death, God offers us life. In the face of death, God offers life. Let's try that as a back and forth. In the face of death, God offers life. God offers life, but it's hard to believe that sometimes, especially when every narrative around us is structured around the heresy of scarcity. Take, for example, Sheila. In an expose of a church in Alabama, Stephanie McCrumman of the Washington Post wrote this in July. Talking about Sheila, she says, it wasn't just Muslims that posed a threat, Sheila said, but all kinds of immigrants coming into the country. Unpapered people, Sheila said, adding that she had seen them in the county emergency room and they got treated before her. Quote, and then the Americans are not served. 
Love thy neighbor, she said, meant love thy American neighbor. Welcome the stranger, she said, meant the legal immigrant stranger. The Bible says if you do this to the least of these, you do it to me, Sheila said, quoting Jesus. But the least of these are Americans, not the ones crossing the border. That piece from the Washington Post on July 21st is enough to make a pastor want to rip his several remaining hairs right out. <laughs> My gut is to scream, that's not what the Bible says! My anxious reaction is to cry out, nationalist, racist, heretic, you heretic with a proclivity for eisegesis and hermeneutical buffoonery. In other words, I don't agree with you things the Bible says. In the face of these big problems, with climate change and gun violence and political division, it's really those people who don't get it. Those people who don't listen, don't read, don't understand history or sociology or economics. Those people are the problem. We can never fix anything as long as those people are around. Do you see what I did there? The problem became somebody else. Yes, I demonized a whole group of people, but I also ignored the problem. And found myself a victim. And found someone else, the villain. This is classic in psychology. It's called the Cartman Drama Triangle. It's historical. Anyone who's ever heard someone else be called those people by a group with more power knows that it's inherent in human psychology. We know that calling Sheila a nationalist is not going to solve our immigration problems. Calling her a heretic is not going to make her believe in the more inclusive faith that I believe. And never in the history of any marriage or any institution has blaming someone else for our problems ever solved them. It never has. And it never will. But it sure doesn't stop us from trying, does it? Didn't stop good old King Ahab. First Kings 17, we get another chapter in humanity's attempts to solve problems with scapegoating. Now before our reading, Elijah goes to the king and says, As the Lord of God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. There's going to be a massive drought. And Ahab could respond like Pharaoh. Remember Joseph with the amazing Technicolor dream coat when he comes up to Pharaoh and says there's going to be a drought? Pharaoh doesn't take it personally. He says, we should do something about this problem to be solved. And he does. He appoints Joseph, lead project manager, and the whole of the kingdom is saved, including Joseph's family and many others who lived in the rural areas outside of Egypt. But Ahab is not that kind of dude. According to the 16th chapter, quote, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than had all the kings of Israel who were before him. And that is not a motley crew, my friends. In this particular case, what really got up God's nerve was that Ahab promoted worship of Baal, another god, supposedly, a vegetation and rain God. And Elijah's proclamation about the rain is not received as a prophetic weather forecast, but feels like a direct threat, a direct attack at Ahab, a declaration that Baal holds no power. 
and that this king who has lifted him up is unfit to serve. This is not the kind of guy that listens well to others, especially when you threaten his power or authority. So Ahab tries to kill the scapegoat as the primary way to solve the big problem, to prove that he is the victim here, and he must conquer evil, that evil Elijah. But in the face of death, God offers life. Yes, in the face of death, God offers life. The good news for Elijah is that God provides him an escape route, a drinking fountain in the middle of the wilderness, and a raven that brings him two square meals a day. Not a bad situation for a prophet. But even then, the fountain dries up. So Elijah enters Zarephath and meets the widow of our story. Remember, widows have no social security, no safety net, no anything. If you don't have a husband, you own nothing. All you have are the alms that people give to you as they pass you by in the road. And that is it. So God tells Elijah to enter Zarephath, this town of a totally different empire and a totally different religion, and says, I've commanded you there to be there. Oh, and a widow is going to feed you. Elijah goes and asks her for water in the midst of a drought. And she provides. That there tells you about her character. Then, Elijah musters his courage, even as he sees her trying to pick up some sticks, not exactly the activity that someone with a strong 401k likes to be doing. And Elijah musters up everything inside of him and says, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Can you imagine the look on her face? An empty jug of water in one hand, maybe clutching a few sticks with her pinky. To look at this man, to think, who do you think you are? Let me tell you my story. She says, I have a handful of meal and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a couple sticks here so I can go home. I can eat my last meal with my son, and then we will both die. But in the face of death, God offers life. Elijah tells her, do not be afraid. Go. Do as I have said. Make me a little cake of it, bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. This is good news, my friends. God provides. What I love about the contrast between the widow and King Ahab is that Ahab has got a very big problem on his hands with this drought that could potentially wipe out this very fragile civilization. And instead, instead of seeking the help of the one who seems to have some good knowledge about this drought, he tries to kill him. He doesn't try to solve the problem, he tries to kill the messenger. The widow, on the other hand, is facing this drought with everything she can. She doesn't blame Elijah. She even helps him out with water in the middle of a drought. But she says, I am here picking up my sticks 
doing my part to solve the problem. Then I will go home and do the thing that I know to do. Take my little bit of oil, my little bit of meal, to eat and to live with that dignity. Because in the face of death, God offers life. Sometimes we feel like the widow. But in general, we do not believe the message that Elijah has sent. Do not be afraid. Are you kidding me? Certainly, Sheila doesn't believe that the jug will run out of oil, the jar not run out of meal. Sheila, from our Washington Post story, is so worried about unpapered people coming into the country. She's worried that too many people will mean less abundance for her. In a case we think that she and everybody in rural evangelicalism is the problem, let's take a good look at ourselves. What are the ways that we don't believe in that truth? We don't believe the jar is going to be full. How could we believe that the jar will be full for our kids who now have to work even harder and work even harder to build up that college resume as it's getting more and more competitive. So we've got to push them to take more of those IB classes and to work a little bit harder and make sure they have captain of this and moderator of that and editor of this on their college resume so they can get into a good school and have a good life because it's hard out there. We don't believe the jug will be full for us. We couldn't possibly give more, whether it's the church or the other nonprofits that we love or support. We couldn't find a way to help out that brother who's in a tough place financially because we've got to have enough, right? It's a scarcity world out there. We've got to take care of ourselves. But in the face of death, God offers life. The Bible is pretty clear that if you're looking for faith, You've got to go to those who are on the edge of life, even in the best of times, and ask them to show you abundance. Jim Hopkins is a pastoral scholar who loves this story and loves a man named Rufus Watson. Rufus loved the story of Elijah and the widow. He lived to be 99. He was born in Texas to, as the son of former slaves. He pitched in the so-called Negro Professional Baseball League, made some money investing in real estate. He witnessed lynchings and spent a lifetime wondering how people could commit such atrocities, still go to church, call themselves Christians. But he found comfort in the story of Elijah and the widow. He said that if his life was not proof enough, this, show, this story showed that God meets people at the worst of times. Rufus said, that's where God meets us, Jim, at the bottom of the barrel. God meets us when we've gone so low that all we can do is look up. I would add that if you've gone so low in the barrel that you have no one else to blame for the problems of this world, you've cleared out all the scapegoats, and you finally look up and see God there offering you a refill in your jar and your jug. So what would it look like for us, friends, if we stopped scapegoating and we actually believe that God would keep our jars full until that a day of abundant rain comes. Sometimes it begins just by practicing it a little bit. 
writing this sermon, I was reminded of the emergency room at St. Joseph's Hospital in Joliet, Illinois. It was June of 2008, and my father had just been brought to the ICU after a massive heart attack. We knew he had died. My mother and I had watched it. And because of a slew of health issues, this was a long time coming. But as I stood at the edge of the room, I heard the words of the doctor confirm the coroner's report. A sweet, simple lullaby played through the hospital's, hospital's speaker system. What's that? I asked. Oh, said the doctor, that's the sound that's played throughout the hospital whenever a baby is born. Mere moments after being confronted with death, God offered life. My friends, how does your life reflect the belief that God will fill you up until the days of replenishing rain come? If someone looked at your financial transactions, would they see someone who believes in a God who sustains? Or would it demonstrate a chronic anxiety and every man for themselves situation? If we did a timeline of the way we spend our time, would we find your belief in abundance, the way that you spend your time serving and nurturing the needs of those at the bottom of the barrel? Or would it reflect a scarcity mindset? These are hard questions for all of us in divisive times. We want to blame others and deal with others as the problem when really what God is asking us to do is to look up and to receive the promise. Personally, today, I'm wondering about Sheila. I'm wondering where her sense of scarcity was nurtured. Later in that same article, we learned that Sheila's family was living in Montgomery, Alabama, and they moved her to the countryside during the Civil Rights Movement, teaching her that any disturbance of the status quo is a threat that must be boxed out, fenced off. She was taught to fear. And now, ironically, with the ostracization of rural white America, I've been taught to fear her and her theological ilk. Could it be that there's something worth hearing that I could be made better by Sheila? Sheila, who professes to be worried about the extermination of Christians in America? Am I determined enough? Do I believe enough in the good words spoken through Elijah to find in her the image of God? The promise that in these millions of others of evangelicals, there is goodness and righteousness and holiness finding a way to see in her the reality that in the midst of death, God offers life. Will I live like I believe that? Will you? Amen. My friends, Nadia Bowles-Weber suggests that whenever we draw a line in the sand, you will always find Jesus on the other side. Let's get on the right side of God's mission in this world. Participate in the work of God's kingdom as we give back to God with our morning's tithes and offerings.